Welcome back again to the Sensible Medicine Roundtable Discussion. I'm joined by Professor Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago and Dr. John Mandrola, cardiologist from Louisville, Kentucky. Gentlemen, it's great to see you again. We have a great lineup in store for you. First, we're going to talk about how to interpret studies, particularly when there's residual uncertainty, which there always is. Next, we're going to talk about seven doses of booster, seven doses of vaccine, I guess five boosters and two bivalent boosters. It's like I always say, seventh one's the charm. We're going to talk about that. And then if we have time, we're going to talk about ABIM and certification, board certification. So gentlemen, it's great to see you again. Why don't we have Adam kick this off? So this is all about uncertainty and study design. Whenever you run a study, you get particularly a randomized study, you'll get some point estimate, but you also get a confidence interval around that. How do you think about this, Adam? How do you make sense of it? Why don't you kick it off? Um, yeah, you know what I could do? do you, you want me to show slides? I have some sort of basic slides from a course of sort of how I always discuss p-value. I'd expect no less. I expect no Did less I than slides. <laughs> <laughs> I got slides for everything, damn it. Um, like a fourth year student all over again. Uh, totally. <laughs> totally. Okay, here, I'll share my screen um, like, a, like a good Zoomer, okay? Um, here we go. And then you guys can actually critique my slides and tell me that I'm getting it all wrong all these years. My students will have post-traumatic stress disorder saying this. Um, so, I, you know, p-values are kind of old school, right? I, I always pitch that, you know, we're used to saying, oh, p equals 0.05. You know, this is wonderful. This this passes the sniff test. Um, so p-values, I as a non-statistician say, you know, there are probability of getting a result or a difference is what we're always interested in, at least as extreme as the one you found if the samples, which are like the treatment control group, came from the same population. And so what that means is that if you get a low p-value, it means the groups are very unlikely to came from, come from the same population. So the treatment, that, the intervention that you've that you've included in your study means that it's changed those two groups, right? Um, and so that's how we use p-values. Um, so this is just sort of an example that I always throw. I think this is actually from the West of Scotland study to go to go way way back. Um, so you know if you're told okay the relative risk is 0.7 and the p equals less than 0.05, that means there's less than a five percent chance that the groups being compared are from the same population. So basically less than a five percent chance that your intervention had no effect. Um, people often say that say that okay there's less than a five percent likelihood that the difference between the two groups is due to chance. I know statisticians like go nuts when they hear that, um, but a lot of people say that, and uh, I don't know. I'll 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 stay out of that. Um, confidence intervals I always find are a little bit more helpful um, because not only do they give a level of significance, but they kind of give a level of certainty. Um, the definition really is: were we to repeat this study with multiple samples? The calculated confidence intervals, and the confusing thing is the confidence intervals would be different every time you did this study, would encompass the true results 95% of the time. Um, and my sort of non-statistician brain, the way I flip that around is, well, if we repeat the study 100 times, you'd get a result within the confidence intervals 95 times. And that's not perfectly right. Um, the definition on this slide is more correct. Um, and so when I use these, I always think, okay, 
confidence interval is two pieces of information. You get a level of significance. If confidence interval crosses one, the result's non-significant. That's by convention. Um, and precision, right? And I think this is probably what you guys have been have been talking about so much lately. Um, you know, if you have two studies, both have a relative risk of 0.7, but one has confidence intervals 0.62 to 0.78 you know, that's a pretty precise study, right? You have a very good sense of how effective this intervention is. While on the other hand, if your confidence intervals go from 0.1 to 0.95, you know, this intervention could be hugely effective or could be barely effective at all. Um, P-values really only give you one um, piece of information. It says, you know, how likely is this result to be, I don't know, true? You know, how likely were we to reject a null hypothesis? So maybe that's sort of my my basis of a place to jump off for, for people who don't do this all the time. Um, but but Adam, the p-value thing, is that similar to the same population? Would that be similar to saying if you if the null hypothesis means that there's no treatment effect, right, then right. the the p-value is really a measure of how surprising the data is if there was no if there was Absolutely. no effect. Absolutely. And so, but it's kind of a made-up hypothesis that there's no that there's no treatment effect. Absolutely, absolutely. Because we're going, you know, and, and that's getting into more of I think the the sort of Bayesian way that we look at these studies, right? Um, you you never have no idea um, that the treatment's going to do something. Sure, there's uncertainty, right? There's equipoise as we go into this. But every study that anybody ever reads, they go into it with some like pre-study probability that the intervention has an effect or doesn't have an effect. Yeah, I think that's okay, really so, nicely stated. I guess yeah. the only things I just to, just to point on that is that, you know, to defend the p-value and the frequentists a little bit, because you're exactly right, John, it assumes you're sampling from the same, you have a jar of M&Ms, you want to know how many yellow M&Ms you're putting your hand in twice, the same jar, or is you're putting your hand in two different jars, right? So it assumes you're put, sampling from the same population. And do you see result this extreme or more extreme? But the beauty of it is, in a world before we had computing power, computers at our fingertips, this was the most straightforward way to make this calculation, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you can look up these values in tables and actually have some conclusion in your, in your practice. And I think that's why frequentist statistics took off. And then for the conference interval, I think Adam's definition is spot on. A mistake people make is, they say the, the probability of the point estimate is in the conference interval is 95%, but that's wrong. It's either in it or it isn't in it, and it's, it's really a long-haul statistic. It's over doing this many, many times over. But, exact, but, but this is the crux of it. Why don't you bring the clinician in, John? Bring the clinician in. How's a clinician okay. thinking about this, and, and let's talk about that. So here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. I want to know, well... We, we we have these New England papers and we have, you know, JAMA papers and we, we have these papers and we have a result and then we're, we're, we're forced to conclude based on the conference intervals and the p-values and and it, it seems like it seems like there's a little bit of variability in, in how we conclude. Okay, for instance, if, if you take um, a really, really important trial um, that goes against my grain is this Dan Kavas trial. Dan Kavas was a was a Danish trial looking at screening, cardiovascular screening um, in a population. And uh, they found that there was, and it was a mortality trial, they found that the screening program, the, the relative risk or odds ratio or whatever hazard ratio was, was 0.95. So 5% reduction. 
And the confidence interval went from 0 0.90, 10% reduction, to 1.0, you know, no reduction. And New England made them say that there was no significant difference. So so that that seems really like, you know, and the p-value, I think, was like 0 0.06 or something. And so they had to declare. But I, but if you look at that 95% confidence interval, the and you sort of convert it to the probability of benefit, it seems like the whole confidence interval was pretty much, you know, below below one. But then... But then your your whole point with this mass study is that we had a we had a hazard ratio that was you know basically below one and above one by almost the same amount and you know people are saying well that's inconclusive and so my question is you know what what's our threshold for conclusive and inconclusive and and I'm asking I I really I really don't know. My bias in this debate and we're gonna I get, we'll bring in Adam in a second but my bias is whatever you want. You just have to be consistent. And so I actually agree with the statistical purists uh, on the internet, like Frank, um, Frank Harrell from uh, Nashville, which is that if you run a study and you have a wide confidence interval, you're actually quite, should be quite inconclusive about your results. There's still a lot of uncertainty about the true point estimate is. It could be you run it many, many more times and crank up that sample size. It could be a benefit. It could also trend towards null. It could even be a decrement. So I actually agree with him that he's right. But the point I want to make is, I just need you to be consistent. So if you're going to have, if you're going to say that for masking, we need 25 more studies to tighten up that confidence interval around null, then you got to say the same thing for all of the other things in medicine that somebody could feel that way about. And I just show my figure. It's not a slide. I'm not as polished as Adam, but it is a figure from a preprint we have up. And, and I'll give a little bit of the backstory. The backstory, the preprint's entitled Interpretation of Wide Confidence Intervals in Meta-Analytic Estimates is the absence of evidence, evidence of absence. And we're looking at Cochrane and we're basically asking, how consistent are they? And what happened was, of course, the mask study came back and it had a wide confidence interval, relative risk 1.01, 0.72 to 1.42. And, you know, the Tom Jefferson, the first author says, there's just no evidence that they make any difference, full stop. There's no evidence that they make a difference. That's what he says. Carla Soares Weiser, the editor-in-chief says, Many have incorrectly claimed masks don't work, but that's wrong. The results are inconclusive. Then what I did was, or what we did was, Sarah Miller, a student here, myself, Jordan Tuya, we just pulled the last 20 Cochrane reviews where it had a similar result. The relative risk is null. The confidence interval is wide. Jefferson shown here, you know, it's one of them. But there's some that are even wider, 0.59 to 1.65. And uh, there's some that are even more unfavorable, perhaps, like... Um, uh, Kim. Kim is, I'm sorry, it's more favorable. And uh, there's some that are more unfavorable on the other side. So Kim is one of the ones where, if anything, it's like Dan Kavas, right? Uh, the upper bound goes to 1.04. And we just pulled what Cochrane says verbatim in their conclusion about these things. With moderate certainty, remdesivir probably makes little to no difference for all-cause mortality. Compared to expectant management, there was no clear difference of induction of labor. Dose-escalated RT probably results in little to no difference. The hazard ratio is 0.66 to 1.04. And then finally, you know, wearing masks in the community probably makes little to no difference in the outcome. And so I guess the point of this article is not to end this debate, which will go on forever. It's just to say that what Tom Jefferson did is consistent with what they all do in Cochrane. These are 20, these are just the last 20. We're not even chair, this is just consecutively picked. And if you want to tell me that for masks, we have to just say it's inconclusive, we don't know, then sure, but do that for everything else too. And then 
show me how you're going to talk to a patient. I really want to know that. You're going to go in the room and be like, well, you know, I could offer you vitamin D and vitamin E. It's only, it's inconclusive. It's inconclusive. Avermectin's inconclusive, you know. So that to me is what my issue is. I just want consistency. And I don't care what the, I mean, I, I'd rather be precise and wrong. No, no, no. But you know what I mean. All right, Adam, what are your thoughts on this? So first, I, I, I've been incredibly busy. So I've been completely off Twitter for the last couple of weeks. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So this is the first time I've seen that. And I I think that's a that's a great paper. Um, I, I love how you went through that. I, I love that forest plot, even though it's not nearly as nice as my PowerPoint slides. <laughs> but um, um, and and I really do agree with everything you said. On on the one hand, I, I think we do need to agree on, you know, some level of, you know, certainty, right, where we draw the line, you know, what our acceptable alpha error is. I remember years ago, I gave a, re, you know, reversal talk to a lay audience and a lay audience in Hyde Park in Chicago is not like a lay audience everywhere else. And some physicist stood up and was like, 95%, you know, 5% alpha error. What the hell is that? We go to like, you know, seven digits to say that that we're not making a mistake. Um, but I think what this brings in nicely is, is it really is different for me as a clinician, right? If if the results of a study is a relative risk of 1.01, right, with fairly wide confidence intervals, um, you know, write a, you know, sort of symmetric confidence intervals around there. I read that as, you know, this is negative. And yeah, we could do a million studies and those confidence intervals will probably tighten up, but it'll probably still be negative, right? But bringing a little bit into the, the Bayesian um, look that John said, you know, if there's something that I go into with, you know, I think this really works and the confidence interval is, sorry, the relative risk is 0.9 and the confidence intervals are, you know, 0.8 to 1.01. I sort of look at that and say, wow, you know, this effect is probably small. And there's a possibility that in the next 10 years, as we do more of these studies and see some meta-analyses, we're going to accept that this has a significant benefit. And if I sort of think that that's likely something that's going to happen, I'm going to act on that paper in that way. Um, or at least I'm going to counsel the patient in that way, I should say. That's interesting. Yeah, but let Is me there... push back. Oh, uh, I... let, me pu let me push back against that and say, but but that gives uh, that gives like proponents of of something a lot of leeway, right? If we don't if we don't have a threshold. So let let me, let me can I let me try and share my screen and I'll, I'll show you something. Um, I want to show you a trial in in uh, in EP. I don't know. Can I share my screen? Yeah, or no? yeah, yeah. You can hit the share oh share button. screen. There you go. Okay, so Google Chrome. All right. Uh, let me show you. Uh, can you see this now? Yeah. One, you have too many tabs open. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is Cabana. This yeah. is antiarrhythmic drugs versus ablation. And, you know, there's a lot of ablation <clears throat> proponents. And this was a big trial, big trial. So let me show you here. Here's the primary Here's the primary endpoint, uh, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a MACE endpoint, 0. Yeah. 0.86, right? Yeah. 14 14 yeah. percent reduction yeah. and the conference intervals go from 0.65 to 1.15 the p-value is not significant but if you're an ablation proponent you can point to that and say there may be a 35 percent reduction right. in in major outcomes with ablation now it could be 15 percent worse but it could be 65 percent. so it's a 14 percent point estimate so 
you have a p-value of 0.3s. It's not very surprising data given the null effect. And so right. this is this is the problem with Adam. Your point of saying, well, I believe this works. I'm an ablation guy. I make a lot of money doing it. And so look at that lower bound of the conference interval. And so I, that's what my question is as a clinician is is I just you know I I just worry about this sort of um, this 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 non-threshold way of of interpreting these studies. And John, that's so, that's so well said because I mean I, I look at that result right and that's negative to me right like right. no me question I, I'm like we don't know anything based on that right p equals 0.3 wide confidence intervals geez you know give me a whole bunch more studies and i think as i kind of read into the future and this is you know i always hate to say oh this is based on 25 years of looking at studies you know in 25 years you know if the technology doesn't change and we continue to to study that even if we find out that's beneficial, right? After another 12 studies, we're going to find that the benefit is so small because we're going to need so many people to show significance there, right? That, that those results in themselves to me are like, you know, we got to go back to the drawing board and we got to do something different. Yeah, but, but they randomized 2,200 patients across the world in multiple centers and spent... This was a this was a NIH funded study. It's been gazillions of dollars and twenty two hundred patients. You I mean, need twenty two thousand. Twenty two thousand yeah. to see the benefit, John. But I think Adam but I think Adam, I want to make a point yeah. to the listeners. What you're saying, and I and and I appreciate this, um, is that if you have to randomize that many patients and if you have to do ten more studies to to show something, you know, has a precise conference intervals, then that is information. In, in and of itself, telling you that there's probably not a major difference between using antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation or drug A or drug B or whatever. And then uh, I want to push on the... Good, yeah, go on. Let me just say, I think a good example of this to take it away from this silly electrophysiology thing that affects, <laughs> you know, basically nobody, is this is the issue with mammography, yes, right? right? I mean, yes, if we randomize, you know, I don't know, three and a half million people, we might actually find that you know, doing mammograms is definitively useful, but boy, that's a lot of people with a lot of harm to put through mammography. It's don't, actually don't the even... problem with all screening, including colonoscopy. I know there's yeah. a debate winner here who's, <laughs> he may have won the debate back then, but now the, the, the shoe's on the other foot. The other point I want to make is that, I mean, we have to have some intellectual honesty in the sense that I don't think ivermectin helps COVID. I think we've done enough studies and we can stop. I don't think vitamin D, you know, helps anything. I mean, besides maybe actual rickets, you know, I don't know. I don't think it helps anything <laughs> except rickets, you know. Um, and I guess I just want to say that the same people who are, want to say that mask data is inconclusive want to also say that the ivermectin believers are morons and they have like basically the same conference interval. And so all I want to say is, you just have to be consistent. So either you all are in the same game where it's okay for them to keep calling for more ivermectin studies and it's okay for you to be calling for more masking studies or you're, you know, you're in a different game. And then the point about like the, the pretest, the Bayesian part, I like a lot of things about Bayesian statistics, but the one thing I have never seen anyone solve is what is the pretest probability? You know, we, it's often your gut and we know our guts are not reliable in this business. 
and if anything, we're too optimistic. Um, so I think that, that that to me is what I find to be the reason why this particular issue got under my skin a little bit was, you know, I saw the Cochrane editor scolding Tom Jefferson, and then I just looked through 20 Cochrane. I'm like, he's basically... And then I also found out they actually have guidance for the language they use. So he actually has no leeway. He, you know, like, he, he, didn't, he did not even have a choice. He, he just did what everyone is doing in the reports. And so either we're going to say Cochrane is all wrong, all these reports should say inconclusive, and, that, and thus if you want to um, skin and care interventions for infants in preventing eczema, that should also be, you know, up for debate too. That's up for debate too. You know, whatever you want to moisturize the infant with. Or we're going to have to say that there's just the last point. There's just so many hypotheses that if we don't have some sort of strict test for what's going to make it, I guess what stops us from just doing a million studies of everything under the sun? And and what is the burden? Do we have to keep doing studies until we show the conference interval exclude? Like it, it's definitely killing people. Like we got to run it until until you got a dead body count on you know. Like I don't know. So to me, I you know I just come back to the the fact that as Adam pointed out that if I saw that that study you just showed there, what was that? Uh, Cabana? Cabana. Yeah, if I saw Cabana as a non-EP doctor, I'm like, that's just stone-cold negative, and I don't want to hear about this again. And I'm and I'm annoyed that you even told me the first time, because <laughs> I don't care, you know? Um, so but that's the my, problem yeah. with... The, I think the problem... I love the Bayesian thing, because just just to bring it to, to the listeners, the, the, idea, the idea with the Bayesian approach is that you're trying to find a probability of a benefit once seeing the data. Rather than what the probability that the you know is of the null hypothesis, so the made up hypothesis, but the, the the problem with the Bayesian thing is that the how you believe or or that pretest that pretest belief, just like it would with chest pain in a stress test, play plays into it. But I think what the Bayesians would say is that you have to calculate the probability of benefit with with a pessimistic prior with an optimistic prior with a neutral prior and you have to you have to calculate what those probabilities are after seeing the data and that makes it complicated and 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 people don't like complicated i think that complicated is okay but that's the i think that's the problem with the bayesian statistics you could take a null trial and make a cabana that i just showed you and i bet if you converted this to bayesian There'd be a substantial probability of of right. uh, ablation better than drugs because the confidence interval is wider on the on the benefit side than it is on the on the harm side. You know, two things are still binary in this world. One, do I offer it to my patient, and two, does the insurance company pay for it? And that's the challenge. With you know, you can be as nuanced as you want, but at the end of the day, are we going to offer this new? Like, there are many drugs that don't come to market with a confidence interval like that. What, what the FDA is saying is that you don't get to offer that drug to your patient. No matter how, uh, you know, ba- you can do all the Bayesian you want. They're not going to let you offer the drug. And then there are many drugs that and procedures that we don't reimburse for. And I think to me, at the end of the day, they're two bin- those are the two binary questions. Adam, you're going to say? I'm not sure if this confuses things or not, but John, you sort of alluded to it. I think that one of the reasons that we get into this problem is that, you know, physicians have to be Bayesian when they're diagnosticians, right? Um, because we all do a test because we have some level of pretest probability, right? Some some level of suspicion. We do a test and then we have to incorporate that pretest probability into those test results. And we can say, oh, well, this is easier because you can look up in a book, you know, if I have a 
you know, overweight 40 year old woman with right upper quadrant pain, what's the likelihood that she has gallstones? And then I can look up the sensitivity specificity of a right upper quadrant ultrasound, right? And come up with an answer. But in fact, that pretest probability is not something you can look up in a book, right? And that's pretty soft. Um, and so I think, you know, going through our careers, doing that everyday managing patients, it, I think it maybe sets us up for errors when we're looking at studies because we're a little bit more used to bringing in information that we know. When if you're looking at Cabana or Bankovus or whatever, you know, we don't really know or masks or anything because um, that's why we're doing the study because we don't know. You know? That's really um, well said. And, you know, the only thing I'd add to that is that maybe the bias that all three of us share, just having been in this sandbox so long, is that. We just think the pretest probability of a lot of things is just really low. Like, you know, we're not nihilists. We're not like it could never work. We just think that in the grand arc of human history, most things didn't pan out the way they did. And maybe because we were all interested in reversals to some degree, you know, Adam with his Women's Health Initiative sort of experiences and John with, you know, cardiac antiarrhythmic suppression trial. Um, those are ones that probably, you know, you like, let's just take cast. If what if you ask the cardiologists in 1985 what's the pretest probability that cast will be a positive study, you know they're going to say an optimistic prior, right? And actually, it, I'm curious to go look up, and we are going to look up the conference intervals for all the reversals that we take for granted. But I did one cool. autologous stem cell transplant; it was very wide, you know. Um, so I just think that like that's just not the way we've been practicing for 30 years. Like cast was enough to end that practice; it killed it. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, but cast was cast is not a good example of this okay. uncertainty because the conference intervals were so much greater on the harm side. I mean, it was pretty clear that it was pretty clear that there was harm. In fact, that and one of them right, killed I, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, oh, okay. but yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it. The relative risk of death was 2.64. 95% conference was 1.6 to 4. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, it really killed him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you were you were at the le at the least you were 60% <laughs> worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> But maybe yeah. Women's Health Initiative was more closer to... That was close. Women's closer Health Initiative, I think, was like 1.2 or 1.3 yeah. as a lower yeah. bound. But, yeah. That 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 dunk, dank of us, dunk of us, however you want to say it, article drove me absolutely nuts for so many reasons. We could do an entire podcast on that. And that's a study that I go into with negative priors for so many reasons that not only do I think screening you know, for let's just say coronary disease, you know, risk factors for coronary events is a bad idea. I think the downstream consequences of that screening is a bad idea. And then I felt like that study was designed in a ridiculous way, but I'll just, I can't but, but, shut but up. But the problem, the problem is it was a Danish study and Danish environment. It's that's another thing. Trial environments play into yes. things so much, right? Because yes. In Denmark, you're not going to have the downstream harm that we that we have here with, like, say, yes. coronary artery calcium screening and, and these these sorts of things. So, listeners yes, who want to hear this discussion, we will do this paper someday. Just a sneak preview that someday soon, the three of us may be offering an online clinical trials course. This will be so, this will be a little bonus. We're going to put this pearl in there. That's that's a teaser for the the faithful fans. The last thing I'll say as we conclude this topic, somebody accused me that I only did that preprint for the clicks. And I want to promise you one thing. <laughs> 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 there, 
There ain't nobody out there who cares enough about conference intervals to be doing that for the clicks. You do that because <laughs> you may you can you can make all sorts of things, but that's not for the clicks, okay? Ain't nobody interested in that paper on SSRN the preprint server. Okay. I'll, I'll second that, Vinay, because I'll just tell you that um, uh, having uh, writing writing for Medscape, uh, I'm pretty much not allowed to not 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 prohibited from it, but just told that if you write about p-values, conference intervals, statistics, you're gonna nobody's gonna read it. So <laughs> that's, a, that's so when we title this podcast, we can't put that in there. You guys are crazy. It was like the lead story on 60 Minutes last week, wasn't it? All about conference intervals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, conference intervals. Is, yeah, that's riveting. Well, the Sackler stuff will be there soon. That was great. Um, okay, let's talk about seventh dose is the charm. Seventh dose is <laughs> seventh dose is the charm. Um, I don't know. I mean, my only thoughts, and then well, I'll kick it to you, Adam. Um, my only thoughts on this is that, you know, I have no doubt that this is a good vaccine. Like statins are a good medicine, and like everything that's a medicine, there are there's a there's a there's a risk gradient there are people at high risk who benefit a lot from statins you know if you've had a cardio you've had an mi and you have high cholesterol like 4s study you get a massive reduction in out you get a massive benefit from taking that statin uh if you're a 16 year old who has mildly elevated cholesterol i honestly have no idea and i don't think any trial has any even tested what happens if you put those people on statin you know and so there's this huge gradient um uh that's true for statins I think there's also this question of diminishing returns. Like, I have no doubt that the COVID-19 vaccine works great in a 70-year-old, dose one. And we do know dose one is like 90% reduction hospitalization. And then each additional dose has some thing, but it's got to diminish over time. And what I think is ironic about this seventh dose bivalent approval is two things. One, you have Peter Hotez and many others saying specifically one of the reasons why they gave this EUA was that the Biden administration has a surplus of bivalent booster and they don't, it's going to go bad. So if we don't, if we don't, you either clean out that refrigerator or it's going to spoil, my friend. So drink the milk, John. I know you're not thirsty, but drink up that milk. That, so that to me rubs me the wrong way. Two, they have no data at all, in my opinion, that the second bivalent inducer helps anybody. We can talk about these observational studies. That'll be fun. Um, and three, they have a population that doesn't really want them. We got 16% bivalent booster uptake for the first one. This will be a subset of that. Um, and four, we have less and less evidence for each additional dose, when ironically, you need the biggest study to find the marginal benefit now because, you know, the, the biggest benefits were in the beginning. All right. Adam, what are your thoughts on this seventh dose? I'm going to be a little more gentle. Good. So first, it's the sixth dose, right? So it was three initial shots. <laughs> okay. We gave a fourth to people who were at high risk. The fifth was the first bivalent. So this is the sixth, the second bivalent, right? I thought you could get two, the fourth and the fifth, if you were at high risk, and then this, I'm going to look it up. I I actually had okay. my my uh, fact checker count, but okay, okay. let's six or seven. So well, we're either at okay. six or seven. Okay, fine. It's, okay. And so, um, you know, I think the read for people who are in favor of this, right, is that um, we have some data. It's not terribly good. It's their observational studies that show if you compare people who have chosen to get a whatever sixth dose um, in addition to their fifth um, have some benefit in fewer hospitalizations over two to four months um, the efficacy 
is about 8%. Okay. So that's, you know, about one in a thousand people who get the shot, get some benefit from it. Now, the flaws of that are huge, right? We don't <laughs> approve vaccines based on observational studies. It's impossible to know if people who chose the shot are are less likely to benefit because they're super careful people who are not going to get COVID and do everything right, or they're actually at higher risk because they're getting the shot because they actually have problems. There's just no way, you know, whenever you try to figure out which way confounding goes, usually you're just, you're just adrift. Um, so, you know, approving this in a way I could care less. You know, I, you guys might think there's some harm to this. I don't really think there's much harm to this, except it further, you know, lessens people's faith in public health in America, which is a disaster as it is. Um, but, you know, me as a primary care doctor, oh my God, you know, having to counsel people who are now like, you know, I got to get this shot and sort of pull them back to say, look, this is the decision you should make. And if you want to get it, it's fine with me. You're probably not going to get much benefit from it. If you don't want to get it, that's fine. I just think once again, we should be doing a better job kind of educating the populace about the, the decisions they're making about COVID prevention. That's a lot of great points there, John. All right. So I have three comments. Uh, first, I want to disagree with you when you said that you have no doubt it's a good medicine because I don't think the modifiers good or bad belong on medical interventions. Fair, fair be, point, fair point. Because, you know, anything can be good or bad depending on the be, be, depending on its usage. So, you know, that's, yeah, so that's number and, one. And that's, number, what, that's what I really meant to say, what you just said. Anything can be good or bad depending on how you use it, fair. Yeah, and dosage, you know, depends on, or toxicity well, depends on dose, that stuff. Um, the the other thing I would say about the evidence about a, a, a sixth or seventh uh, vaccine is that <clears throat> trials I think or evidence has an expiration date, right? So so in twenty twenty three is a lot different than twenty twenty, sure. and you know you have you have different levels of immunity, you have different viruses, you have all this change, and I would argue that I would argue that the trial setting or the evidence setting right now is so much different. Than it was in 2020 when we when it's just obviously different and 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 as as a backup of that i will tell you that in my world in cardiology one of the most one of the most common things we do is put in a defibrillator in patients who have heart failure because the the two seminal trials in 2020 uh were around you know around 2000 were positive so 20 years ago trials were positive however everything's changed right sudden death has gone down medicines are better and the last defibrillator trial, Danish, was totally negative. And now in Europe, I read that there are going to be two, they're going to repeat the seminal trials. I saw because that. The, because the, the trial environment, things have changed. So I would say that the evidence for a sixth or seventh booster now is much different than it was back then. And we ought to have new evidence. And, and the third thing I would say to Adam's comment about harms of the vaccine and and you said you just said offhandedly it lessens trust in in public health and to me to me this is one of the biggest lessons from from the pandemic is that this is underrated as a as a harm i mean because when we promote things with poor evidence and anything that would anything that shreds trust i think is a huge huge intangible harm i agree with all of that and the things that i'll just add to the pile um 
I mean, the one thing that Adam says is like, of all the things, it's, you know, uh, if somebody over the age of 65 wants to do it, do I think they're like jumping off a bridge? No. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, maybe there's a small benefit. Maybe it's a waste of your time. Maybe you'll get some sore arm. Maybe you'll, you're unlikely to have myocarditis because the first six, I'm going by the seventh assumption, the first six didn't do it for you. You know, okay. And you're not in the target age group, et cetera. Um, one thing I think it teaches us is that this is for 65 and up or those who have a risk factor. This same FDA said in 2021 that they cannot give an approval for 65 and up because the American people are so stupid. They won't know. You got to have a one dose for everybody, whether you're 12 years old and 16 had COVID or 85. We can't have different based on age. That's what they said. And now, of course, oh, now they acknowledge that like everything else in medicine, we know how old we are and we can easily do it. It's not so hard. So that's strike number one. Number two. Um, I think the observational data, yeah, Adam's point is you don't know which way the confounders go. I agree. Um, the trust, I think, is important. And then the point I want to make is Pfizer has $100 billion in one-year revenue, which I think is the most of any company in human history in pharmaceutical industry. They had so much cash in their pocket. The Bor- you know, Borla can't even walk without a $100 bill falling out of his pocket. That they, <laughs> they bought Seattle Genetics. They bought Seattle Genetics at market cap $43 billion, which is a, such a premium of Seattle Genetics. And Seattle Genetics, the first thing they did was they had a failed phase three. No, yeah, this, the SWOG study screwed them. I mean, why is the company buying that company? That's what you do when you have just too much cash is burning a hole in your pocket. And in this economy, where are you going to invest that money? You just got to acquire. But why do they have so much cash? And I think it's because this FDA is like, what are, I mean, they are like, this FDA is like Pfizer's lapdog. They roll over, let him scratch his belly. I mean, like, give them, give them a challenge. Paxlovid, we still don't have a date, good data for vaccinated people, boosted people. Each additional booster, we're not asking them to do anything anymore. In fact, I don't even know if they requested this EUA. They just got it. And then to your point about where we're not in 2020, I really think they have to stop using the EUA. Like, the EUA's emergency use authorization, it requires a fed, federal declaration of an emergency, which legally they're keeping holding on to that. But can anyone tell me, in all honesty, a 65-year-old runner who's skinny and healthy, who's had five or six doses of vaccine and had COVID once or twice, is facing an emergency such that you have to like alter regulatory requirements? I think that's wrong. And my last point, unrelated to this, you know, some, you know, I, 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 I think mifepristone should be on the market. I think that's crazy talk to trade to take it away. But I do think you should be able to sue the shit out of the FDA. And I want to see somebody sue them on a, a cancer drug approval or an Alzheimer's drug approval because FDA ultimately is responsible to the people. And so people, you get yourself in court. So anyway, that's my, that's my thoughts. Adam? Nothing else to say. <laughs> John, closing comments? No, I mean, I, I mean... I guess the one thing that struck me all during the pandemic is 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 why couldn't we we all of our lives in medicine we risk stratify right we we use medicines and we use surgeries and procedures based on risk and and the 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 idea that we weren't allowed to we weren't allowed to risk stratify people during the pandemic when the the earliest data was clear there was a major age gradient and and risk factor gradient and and you know now of course we are using this risk gradient and why we couldn't is just so mysterious and i i think that i think that people understand that and um really 
I mean, really, it was a real trust shredder, I think, because people are like, you know, why why we're mandating a 23-year-old person in a hospital get uh, multiple vaccines, uh, say, post-COVID, when clearly that person's risk was lower? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think... You know, I, I feel the need to make this point, even though I don't believe it. Um, you know, the the argument was, uh, well, by you know vaccinating low risk people, we're going to help high risk people, right? Which um, there was a time that that argument was reasonable because we didn't know any better. Um, it didn't take long, I think, for that to become an unreasonable <laughs> argument. Um, and I think, you know, a wise person once said to me that, you know, you can motivate behavioral change in multiple ways. Um, you know, you can either do it by educating people about their own risk, about their risk to others, or you can motivate people through fear. Um, neither of those ways of motivating people is nearly 100% effective, right? Getting people to change their behavior is always nearly impossible. Um, but the downside of motivating people through fear rather than through education is enormous. Um, and I sort of think that that's what we're paying for at this point. Um, well, yeah, I agree, Adam. I agree, and I don't want listeners to think that, it, you know, but it became very clear to me, it became very clear to everyone that there was a, you know, that there was a problem with, with trans, there was a, you know, it wasn't permit, it wasn't a stopping transmission. And so, you know, the man, so the mandates went on way longer and, and you say, you, you say uh, persuading people with fear is problematic. I couldn't agree more, but also um, it's possibly, possibly even worse with coercion, right? I mean, yeah. Coercion should we should have the highest level bar right. when we start with coercion. Well, I'm glad Adam made the argument because I think that's an argument that a listener may be thinking. The two counter arguments I have is one: if you actually look at the date that most of the mandates went into effect, the date was beyond the date we knew that it couldn't halt transmission. You know, that, so that's it's a bit of a problem. But the second argument I make is that even in the beginning, where people thought it was highly effective, it wasn't clear to me that like if I got my own shot that forcing John to get his gives an additional benefit to me. I, I never saw that sort of compelling case. But let's shift to the third issue, because we could go on and on about this, the third issue. One, before the third issue is gonna be about board certification and about these new rules for modules in Illinois State. But just by show of hands, who still has to mask in their clinics and hospitals? Uh, not me. We, You're out, we're, huh? We're all done completely. I think it's so interesting the that which hospitals are the first to let it go and which are not and i don't want to say anything because it's going to spoil some paper that i'm about to publish but okay um uh but let's just say I, i'll that, just say yeah you don't have to say anything about the paper but i'll just say that the the moment that it happened an email came uh, on a 10 o'clock the 10 a.m on a friday and at 10 10 everybody was mask free <laughs> i mean it, it it was it was a similar it was a similar that when the airlines announced uh, uh, no more masks and it is just it has just been wonderful to be able to communicate with people and and 
Um, I'm just now getting over the the idea of being naked, you know, without a mask. Uh, and so it took a while to to get rid of that. But it's it has been wonderful to to be with people in in a normal way. Must be nice, but John. COVID's not as dangerous where you are. As in, <laughs> in Kentucky, I think it did a lot of damage in Kentucky, as in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a great feeling. You know, there's the old saying in medicine, you don't want to be the first doctor to do something and you don't want to be the last. And all I want to say to these hospitals is you don't want to be the last one still masking. You're going to look pretty bad. All right. So let it go. All right. The final topic, board certification. Um, Adam had a great tweet recently, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it, but it was something like the state of Illinois passed some law that he's got to do like seven hours of training. You're going to tell us what it is. More modules. And I had a tweet complaining about modules um, and sort of led into the discussion of ABIM board certification and how many of us have to renew every 10 years. And some of us who got in, I think before 92, 93, are grandfathered in, quote unquote. They never had to do it. Um, why don't Why don't you explain your uh, the new rules you're facing in Illinois, Adam, and and some of these thoughts on board certification? It's been very much on our minds lately because um, everybody's had to renew their licenses in Illinois. And there are just seems like every time the legislature meets, um, I'm probably guaranteeing myself that I'm going to get audited by saying any of this. Um, you know, something else is, is added on. And it's, uh, you know, right now, the last thing that was added was training and recognizing dementia. Um, and you know, what's, what's hard is that every one of them makes some sense, you know, recognizing dementia is important, understanding the risks of prescribing opiates is important. Um, but as these things sort of pile one on top of another, you know, it's getting to the point where I have to put aside, you know, half days every now and then to get all of my compliance adherence, um, you know, uh, mandates completed. Um, and and I feel like I, I'm, you know, I'm an obsessive person who's really concerned about the care I take for my patients. And, and I find it insulting that, um, that, you know, above and beyond, you know, the oath that I swore and the sort of blood, sweat and tears that I, I spend every day taking care of people, that somebody checks a box in the legislature and says, oh, you know, he's doing a crappy job unless he watches this you know, ridiculous video and answers three questions. Um, and can so we talk about know. the evidence for it? Which is like, I don't know, we're right. a field where you wouldn't give the patient a module on smoking cessation unless, like, let's say somebody came to you, Adam, and said, you know what, every one of your patients, I've got a 25-minute video, you're going to show them on this iPad, and you're going to say, you know, before we debut this at the UC hospital, like, shouldn't we do a study to show that patients gain something from this? Or, right. you know, and so similarly, your time is so valuable and also we're dealing with burnout and like supposedly I keep seeing all these doctors and nurses quitting and nobody wants to do this thankless job. And then they want to come in and like make you do another bullshit module. And uh, and so let alone ha the evidence that whether or not it improves outcomes, which I think I know they don't have. I'm just curious about the evidence of surely they know that anyone who does this module, here's what you do. You hit next, 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 next until you get to the question at the end. 
you read the question, and if it's 90% of the time, it's such a common sense question like, you know, which is the best thing to do for a patient? Listen to them intently. B, uh, uh, throw them down a flight of stairs. C, you know, he's like, you know, it's like, okay, okay, uh, listen to it intently, right, you know? So like, don't they have data that nobody's even looking at it? Yeah. And, and you know, when you don't do that, um, you don't do that when it really matters, right? There's no reason to avoid education or, you know, take shortcuts on tests if if you know that the only person who's penalized by not learning that information is basically your patients, right? Like we don't try to get good grades now for anybody else except the people we're taking care of. Um, so already you have to trust us that like we're doing our best to take care of people. And that certainly if I want to learn something, I'm going to find much better resources right. than I'm being forced to go through here. Um, ah, I just like, I'm still annoyed about it. John, you have a comment? <laughs> I want to have a comment. Yeah, so the, yeah. so the issue that we're struggling with in cardiology is that the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, you know, the, 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 the positive side and listeners will probably want to know that their doctors are fulfilling some degree of competence, right? So I want to go to a competent doctor and I want to have some sort of proof that this doctor is competent. And so the American Board of Internal Medicine, when I started, had a board exam and to go into your field, you had to pass a board exam and that was it. And then slowly and gradually over time, the American Board of Internal Medicine has added extra features. And of course, these all come at a cost. Um, you know, a, a year, an exam every 10 years, and then maintenance of certification where you do a certain amount of hours. And, and regular continuing medical, medical education doesn't count. Like if I go to a meeting and learn about EP or whatever, that may or may not count for the American Board of Internal Medicine. It has to be their brand. Okay, well, then what do they do? Well, then they then they partner with the American College of Cardiology and HRS, and then American Cardiology will sell you a $2,000 uh, booklet to study for ABIM. So it's this whole uh, thing, and it's just been added on. But here's the problem. And I think Wes Fisher, we have posts coming from Wes Fisher, who's an EP in Chicago. He's been great about this. Here's the problem with this whole argument. It's all uh, undermined by the fact that they let the oldest doctors, the ones who trained before whatever, I'm like two years from being grandfathered in. Oh. If you finish that early, then you're grandfathered in. You don't have to do any of this. And of course, if you're an older doctor, you're the one who should most do continuing medical education. <laughs> and so it's it's completely undermined. And, and basically, I've come to believe that it's just a sort of rent-seeking uh, way uh, of, of, of making money for an organization for organizations and extracting money it, and it's been given a tailwind because now most employed physicians have two four five thousand dollars of CME money and so we've lost the will to fight because we're like screw it we'll just take it out of our CR CME money and and do it so it's I don't know what the answer is for 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 certifying doctors but this this is a, a extremely flawed um, a program. They're just a good parasite, if you ask me. They see that doctors make a lot of money. You got a lot of blood in your veins. A good parasite will suck you, but it can't suck too much and kill the host. You know that's a bad parasite. The problem is they're pushing their luck recently. They're pushing their goddamn luck with Adam's bill. They're pushing their luck because they're gonna kill some hosts. 
And by that, I mean they're going to get somebody in the age of range of 55 to 65 who is going to do a few more years that's going to say, enough of this. And to be honest, I, I, wrote, I do work in a couple hospitals, and there's one hospital that keeps emailing me so much to do. And I really started to think, like, you know, it's not even worth the modules. Like, you know, I'm only going there a little bit, and I'll just do more at the other hospitals. I'll just do one set of useless modules. So, you know, no evidence. They're sucking our blood. Um, why does it exist? I think because the same way we have given our practices to private equity and to the administrative state, um, this is just another way we've let them abuse us, and we just take it. And we take it because, you know, even though the mosquito sucks your blood, you got a lot of blood, you know? So, like, yeah, you're, like you say. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, one of the good things Biden did was he, like, limited the amount patients can pay out of pocket for oral anti-cancer drugs in Medicare. He, like, capped it at 1000 thousand, fifteen hundred, 1500 something like that, rather than it could be, like, you know, 7000 and then you hit the donut hole. You know, it could have been really bad. And I think that's good, but one of the downsides is, the moment you spend, you don't have to spend out of your own pocket. As you say, John, the moment you have the CME money to do it, you don't have the skin in the game, and so you don't fight as hard. And so the grandfathering in was a tactic to prevent the doctors of the day from not accepting it. That was why they did it. You know, it was a political bargain. You spending CME money is a political bargain. This is a very clever parasite. It's sucking your blood and infected our brains. But I think the solution well, I, to the parasite is removal. Go ahead. It's to is rip what? it out. Rip that fucking parasite yeah, out. Yeah, but the problem, the problem, Vinay, is this, is is this, and, and I think the rent seekers know this, is that that would require, if every doctor, if every doctor just said, tomorrow morning, we're done with this. We're not working until this changes. It would change in like three days. Yeah. But we, when I joined a cardiology group, we had 20 cardiologists. You couldn't get 20 doctors to agree on anything, one thing. So there's, the rent seekers know that there's enough people who are just saying, I can't be bothered with this. I'll, 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 I'll pay to play. And so it, it's just there, there'll never be an organization because doctors have other, we have other goals, right? We have, we want to take care of patients. We need to pay our mortgage. We need to, you know, keep our kids in school. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the solution is. And in fact, the legislatures can say other board, like there's another, there's a competing board. Um, uh, I, I can't remember the acronym, but there's yeah. a competing board. It's like the national the board problem, or something. The yeah. problem is that the ABIM has captured the insurance companies. So then you'll get a letter saying you could be board certified by the other board, but the insurance companies will say, guess what? We're not, we're not covering, we're not covering you unless you're certified by ABIM. So. Adam, closing thoughts on this issue. I can't talk about it anymore. I'm so yeah. depressed. So de <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I mean, I guess, you know, I always tell people this, which is like, they're so true. I, it's a thought experiment. And actually, let's close with this. This is the closing thought experiment. I always say, you know, you've made the right choices in your life and career. As if I came to you and I just gave you $100 million, John. Here's $100 million. And then I asked you, what are you going to do next week? Are you going to go into your EP lab and say, guess what, guys? I'm rich. I don't need your money. I'm done. Are you going to cancel your talks? Are you going to stop doing these podcasts on a Sunday? <laughs> maybe. Maybe that one. Maybe that one. Um, are you going to stop being a writer and stop your podcast? And I honestly go through my own life and think about, you know, what would I keep and what wouldn't I keep? And the, the, the answer is I always just come back to just where I am. Like I would take the Uber a little more often. 
Like I, I, I ride the public bus a lot and I bicycle a lot. I, I maybe sometimes when it's raining, I might take, uh, you know, a cab. Um, but besides that, I think I would just do everything. I still, you know, the classes I teach, the clinics I do, the attending I do, it's all like what I would want to do, even if I didn't need the money. Um, except these modules are the only thing that sometimes they test me. They're testing me with their module. And one of these days, if I had a lot of money, I would just like find a way to, to, to get extract revenge on these module makers. Okay, so that's the, cl the closing thought experiment. You have $100 million gifted to you, John. What are you doing differently in your career? And then we'll do Adam and then we'll close. Yeah, I think that I think that would be a real struggle because um, we all have our pegs that we hang our self-esteem on, right? That gives us meaning. And and if if you didn't have a peg, you know, if it wasn't um, mastering conduction system pacing or or uh, writing uh, in a in a in a beautiful way or clear way, if it wasn't a good podcast or or giving a good talk, uh, taking care of patients. What, what would we get meaning from? And so, yeah, $100 million would be, that's a lot of money. Um, uh, but but I, I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine just uh, going to the AT&T store and getting a different phone and saying, see, see you later. I, I, I think I probably would, I probably would do the same thing for a while, though, um, because it gives meaning. Would you cut back on hours? Would you change anything? Um, it, it's really hard, right? Because, because, um, I'm 59 years old and I've never worked harder in my life. You know, uh, um, uh, travel, as you know, is hard. Yeah. Uh, preparing talks is, 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 you know, talks don't make themselves. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I might say no to, to certain talks or, or travel, but, uh, my work is, I, you know, I can't complain about my work. It's, 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 it's pretty nice job. Adam. I am 56. I've got what I think four more years. And I think what I would do is I would wait until a month before I was already planning on retiring and take your $100 million then, because <laughs> then that would pay for some nicer travel during my retirement and make things easier for my, I don't know, grandchildren, great, great grandchildren, whatever. So um, I'm just going to scam you out of your cash at some point. Um, but right now, you know, I think we're all in the same boat. Not only does our uh, do our professions define us, but you know, I feel like I've made good decisions. I'm very happy with what I'm doing, and and we're we're well compensated. But I, you know, I I couldn't ask for anything more. Wow, I, I would buy I would buy a couple of new bikes. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I would have the highest level bikes, and I would have a gravel bike, and I would have another mountain bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have a couple road bikes because, you know, Italian Italian road bikes, they're, they're great when they're working, but they break down a lot. So I would have one for when it breaks down. Yeah. I'd buy more electric guitars. I'd buy more, uh, <laughs> more mount. I'd buy more bicycles like you. I'd get, you know, a certain derailleur that I'm eyeing, a certain power meter. You're right. But in terms of um, work, well, I think that's the closing thought, um, which is that I think maybe this is also why we're actually friends in real life, at least I think, uh, which is that, um, you know, we all actually, despite all the complaints, you know, to, to do to do something where, you know, you do it for free, really, like it, you do it, you don't, you wouldn't do it for the money. Um, that's a privilege. And, and I think not all the doctors I know feel that way, um, especially in this day of burnout, um, especially I'm with not, that, huh? I'm not friends with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's just be clear. Okay. So on that positive <laughs> note, we'll be back next week. Uh, thank you so much. Adam and John, this has been a great discussion.